My name is Bobby Rush. You listen to the Talking Blues. Uh, I'm a blues man. I talk a lot. So do my hosts. So you're going to hear a lot of blues talking today. Sitting here in Mississauga, Ontario, at a at a hotel, you will hear the air conditioning kick in every so often. I have the great pleasure of sitting down here with Bobby Rush to talk about his life in music. I've known Bobby for probably seven or eight years. Yes, yes. And he's been very kind to me every time I've asked him for an interview. That's because you stalks me, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's because we have love for each other. That's that's the main thing, you know. But, but I always appreciate that because you're a very busy man and you've never said no. And for whatever project, and I probably interviewed you more than most musicians. Yeah, and and yeah. you've always said, yeah, for sure, let me do it. And I appreciate that. So. Well, thank you. And then uh, not only do I appreciate you for interviewing me now, but interviewing me in Tashisaki. Tashisaki, this is closer to Mississippi you can get, man. Listen, look at the spelling of this town. <laughs> I live in Mississippi, so hey, you know, this this is at the Mississippi way from home. This is the Mississauga Delta. Yeah, so. yes, the Mississauga Delta. That's right. <laughs> so how you been? I've been great, man. I've been feeling good. Uh, uh, been recording now for six or two and a half years and 337 records under my belt, and, and I'm still in the studio now. I'm doing some recording. This coming November the 15th, I'm coming out with a uh, box set with about 35 to one side, 35, close to 70 songs. Wow. That's a lot of songs. And this is career spanning? Yeah, career spanning. You know, it's not everything I've done, but it's most, some of the older stuff that I did earlier in my career and uh, up to some of the later stuff that I've done, you know. And uh, I'm in the studio now recording a kind of a, uh, raw kind of a thing and uh, I did about 12 or 13 songs already so I think we're there and I don't know when it's coming out we're just finishing up with it we start to picking it and choosing the dates and the time what we're going to do with it in the next week or two but it's all good well you work hard and you have all your life I presume yes 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 <laughs> got no choice when you're hungry man make it work well can so, we start at, at the beginning I know you're a son of a preacher yes I know you were a cotton picker. Yes. Tell, tell me about your childhood. What was well, it like? Well, I was born in a little place called Haynesville, Homer, Louisiana. In other words, it's, the place is called Carquit. I'm six miles from Homer and about five miles from Haynesville. So I'm right between the two little towns in the country. Chop cotton, pick cotton, plowed the mule, went out to the outside toilet. Now, let me tell you what that is. That's when you don't have a toilet inside your house. You got to go outside to go to the toilet. Now, you don't know what I'm talking about, but somebody probably read about it to you or you heard about it through the grapevine. Mm -hmm. But that's where I come up with. You know, my father was a preacher, pastor of two churches. I have 10 sisters, 10 of us kids in the family. And my dad on his family is 32 children. On my mom's her side, there's 13 children. Wow. So I came from a big family and have a big family and, you know, and I have four children and a bunch of grandkids and great-grandchildren. So here I am uh, still enthused in what I do, man. I'm still enthused. I'm still on fire. Where are you in the ten children? Are you at the top of the... No, I'm the seventh child. I'm in the middle, in, close to the middle. 
And what's it like to have a family of ten <laughs> and to be the seventh child? <sighs> Those saying that I'm the one, I'm the one called a seventh son. Not not the seventh son, but seventh child. It felt good because I had the older sister and brother who could teach me some things that they knew. I had some younger uh, brothers and sisters that I could teach them things I know. So I'm in a teaching position and I'm a learning position. I learned from the older children, which is my older sister and brother, but yet I'm in a teaching position I got to teach my younger sister and brother. So uh, I'm a teacher and a learner. And if I'm not mistaken, you, you're always a teacher. Like you're, you're still a teacher at this point. Yeah, I guess you can call it that, but I want to say that I learn more than I teach. Mm-hmm. Because when I'm around people, even if they're younger, some things they do and say, some things I can't do and say, and I learn, I learn those things. But the main thing, I learned in this life what not to do, because what you can do, take care of yourself. I learned what not to do. Tell me about growing up um, in the South and, and what that was like in the time that you grew up. Growing up in the South as I was a child, all I knew had one pair of shoes, had no money, but I had plenty of love. My father and mother was was married for six or some odd years. And uh, growing up with that, having love was a great advantage to me. But having no money, but plenty of food, I didn't know about no money, no, no about food, but no money. Then I moved to Shoe. Chicago. I left my hometown in 1947, moved to Pine Bluff, Arkansas, with my father, who was a minister and a pastor of a church. In early 50s, I moved to Chicago, where I met the mom Mabley, the, the uh, Muddy Waters, Little Walter, uh, Chuck Berry, uh, the Jimmy Reed, and, and Willie Dixon. How old were you at this time? Uh, 20. Okay, so before we go to Chicago, tell yeah. me about your love of music and where that came from. <laughs> Come from inner, I always loved music. Always wanted to play guitar and the harmonica bit. So my first cousin gave me a guitar when I was seven years old, roughly. And I hid it in a loft, in an old barn. Didn't know my daddy knew I had the guitar, but apparently, you know, your daddy knew everything. <laughs> I hid it in the loft, and it stayed there three or four days, and the neck whopped on it. You know, got right. the sun got to it, got hot. So one day my dad said, call me Junior. Junior. I said, yes, sir. He said, bring that guitar here. Let me tune it up for you. God, I didn't know you know I had a guitar. I said, he going to whip me about this guitar because my plan was to play the guitar but not gospel. My plan was to play the blues. I mean, my plan was to play the blues, not the church stuff. Right. And I said, he's gonna get me about this guitar. So he took the guitar and he tuned it up, stroked it down. I knew he could play the harmonica somewhat, but I didn't know he knew how to play guitar. He said, boy, let me sing this song to you that I used to sing to you, to a little girl when I was a little older than you. Now I wanted to hear this song real bad because I knew he was gonna talk about my mother. But he didn't talk about mother and I said, if he don't sing about my mother, what are he going to sing about in my head? I said, he got to sing about glory, glory, hallelujah, since I laid my burden down. I was looking for that song because that's one of his favorite songs. But no, he didn't sing that song. He said, 
Me and my gal went to Chinky Pin hunting. She fell down and I saw something. I said, Daddy. <laughs> I said, sing it again. And what I wanted him to do, I didn't want him to sing it again. I want him to sing the next verse. Because right. I know the girl fell down. He saw something. But I'm figured in my little mind that the next verse is going to be about what he saw. Now, I said, sing it again. I didn't ask my daddy what you saw. I said, sing it again. He said, me and my gal went to Chanky Pin hunting. She fell down and I saw something. So my mother was in the back of the back of him. He couldn't see my mother. But my mother said, <clears throat> meaning don't sing that kind of song to that boy. I was in the front of my mother. I was looking at my mother, but my dad's back was to my mom. He couldn't see her. He had his hat on his head, just came out the cotton field picking cotton and with his overalls on. He said, me and my gal went to Chanky Pen, hunting. She fell down and I saw something. I said, sing it again. Now, I wanted him to sing about the part she fell down. I said, Dad. My mama said, <clears throat> me, don't sing that kind of song to that boy. He didn't pay my mama any attention. He said, let me tell you something, boy. I said, Dad, before you say that, how big was she? He said, oh, boy, she was fat, real big woman. I said, what's your head on? He said, nothing but a dress. In my little mind, a fat lady falling down, nothing on but a dress. Wow, I could just see it in my mind. <laughs> this fat lady falling down, nothing on but a dress. Oh, my little mind was running. I said, sing it again, Dad. Now, this time, I know she's fat. She don't have anything on but a dress. That's a lot of things to see. I said, sing about that, daddy, sing it. He said, me and my gal with Chanky Pin Hunt. My mother was walking towards my daddy. My daddy couldn't see her. I said, dad, daddy, daddy. Here come my mama. Oh, he didn't pay any attention. He had his mouth stuck out. He said, me and my gal with the Chanky Pin Hunt. She fell down and I kept running. <laughs> <laughs> my mother busted out. I don't know what the song would have been. I don't know what uh, he saw, but in my mind. A fat lady falling down with nothing over the dress. Wow. <laughs> I can just imagine what he saw. But anyway, I never knew what the song was going to be. Never know what it was. But I'd imagine in my mind mm -hmm. what he saw. Especially on a lady with nothing on but a dress. And fat. <laughs> but musically, where would you have gotten the music? Was it from... Uh, from an old radio, and late at night we could sneak and play the radio from Grand Ole Opelous and WLAC, and we could hear the blues right. uh, often. Then we went up to a little town jukebox that would have Muddy Waters on, uh, uh, Louis Jordan, people like that. Not many blues, but what I heard, I loved it. But I was in love with country western. Mm -hmm. One song that I was in love with said. It was a country western guy singing it. So you get the hook and I'll get the pole. We going down to the craw that hole. Honey, baby, mine. Oh, I love that, you know, you know, because I can relate to the fishing hole and the whole bit, and, you know. So, and there are many other songs I can relate to, but particularly that song, country western. That's all we heard with country western blues, you know, but and you, gospel quite natural. Did you know that music was something you wanted to pursue? Oh, yeah. I knew yeah. that early. I knew it when I was six years old. I know what I want to be from early age, I didn't know that I gonna make money from it. <laughs> Someone told me, said, Bobby Rush, you gonna make money from this, you gonna be great. Great, I can understand, but you make money from this I love that I would do freely because I was doing it for the love of it. Right. You know, not, not the money of it. Now, all of a sudden, then 
you know, I, you, if coming from that area to now, I remember so many good times, so many happy times, but I remember so many sad times also. I mean, it had to be difficult. Oh, it's difficult. I mean, so many. <sighs> what make I remember? I my first job, I got twelve dollars a month. Twelve dollars a month. That's what I was making. Right. Then when I got a raise to three dollars a day. Can I ask you what you're doing? Uh yeah, I was in a gin. Uh belly cotton. Okay. Twelve dollars a month. And that's three dollars a, a week. That's hard work, right? Hard work. Uh, but I was doing the harmonica thing at night, hoping that I could get out of this situation working for twelve dollars a month. So finally, I got in a job with the same guy, paying me $3 a day. For $15 a week, I was making. And I asked Jermaine one day, I said, I need a raise. Do you like what I'm doing? He said, yeah, I love what you're doing. You're a great worker. I said, since I'm a great worker, you love what I'm doing. How about a raise? He said, I, uh, I can't give you a raise. Noise in the background. Yeah. He said, I can't give you a raise, but I can give you another day's work. And, get, and so I now had another day's work for $3. Right. Not a raise. Work another day for $3. Work on Saturdays now. So that, that was hurting. Another situation, I was working for a man as a kid. He told me, he said, son, come work for me. I'm going to give you a payday. I didn't have enough of knowledge to ask him how much or what. As long as I got a payday coming, I'm I'm I'm, I'm happy with that. Right. I worked five days and half a day on Saturday, almost six days work. He said, well, "You did a great job. Come on in and get your money. We got the payday for you." I come in with my hands out, expecting some money. He gave me a payday, a candy bar. Hmm for all my work. One candy bar. That was my payday. It said payday on the side. A payday candy bar for all my work. That was heartbreaking to me because I didn't know anything about it in the money situation. And then I moved up a little later as a guitar player and a harp player. Started working the juke joints, the little bitty places. Did you know what, what that being in the music business meant at that point? No. just I just knew I loved it, hoping to have some fun, not knowing there was money involved. Right. In it. Not knowing at all. I just wanted to be involved with the music. Had no idea that it was a career. No, I had no, no, no idea. I just knew I loved it. But when you heard people like Muddy Waters or John Lee Hooker or whoever... Did you think that they were making money doing this? No, thing? I thought they was doing it for the fun of it. I didn't think about the money in there because I had made me a guitar upside the wall a little before I heard about Muddy Waters. I uh, heard the records of it. I heard Smokey Hall and John Lee Hooker, people like that, a little before the Muddy Waters. And I made this guitar upside the wall, one string guitar. You put a guitar upside the wall and you put a string a brick at the top, a ball at the bottom. You get this sound, ding, 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 ding. Until one day, 
I was pulling on it, strained, and the brick fell out and hit me in the head. Then I reversed the brick to the bottom and the bottle at the top. Then I got another sound, go boing, 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 like, you're going to wang, dang, doodle all night long. That's that sound. Right. It changed my the tones of it. Then I got me a, then I started making my guitar out of a bottom of a tub. I made a one-string guitar, put me a pole on it, a string on it, and you, you played a bass on it. You could turn the tub, lean it, go ding, put it down, go boom, ding, boom, right. ding, boom. With the, you know, that was my sound. You know, the tub, mm-hmm. cock it up, you go ding. When you put it down, go boom, you know, and that was my sound. So I got the place I could play that well. So then I went to harmonica. My daddy blew hard, and I couldn't afford a harmonica, so I went and got me a, a coin cob and a rubber band and a stick. I put the rubber band, on, hooked it on each end of the stick, put me a comb cob on the bottom of it, took me a little stick, and I made me a juice, so I go, bang, da 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 I was all the way out of the music. I didn't have a drum, so I got a, a bucket, a, a, a gallon soap bucket, we call them, it had soap in it. Then I would take the top off of it, stick holes in the top, and put it on. I would stack the bottom. I go do 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 Then if you didn't have the holes, they go bop 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 bop. Put holes, they go You know, I get my different sound. So if I want a lighter sound, I take the top off. I go Put the top. I go boom 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 boom. You dig holes, they go You know. So I got my different sound by what what kind of top I had on this. Sip can. That's the only kind of drum that I knew I had. So then I I moved from that to the harmonica. When I when I got got in the way of Sonny Boy Williamson, Lil Walter, I want me a harp like my daddy had. And I started playing the train on the harp and the whole bit. And I got familiar with the how to play it. I learned how to play it and I and I played well. You know. You certainly do. And, you know? and so you go up to Chicago and at this well, point, I, when I went to Chicago Muddy Waters was there. Little Walter was there. Uh, Smokey Hall was there. And Willie Dixon was there. Then in 1952 or 53, Bo Diddley came. And then come Smokey Hall, Johnny Hooker. Jimmy Reed was there, but he was recording for VJ Records. Then came... Mom made my uh, pick me Markham. Then Chuck Berry came. In 1957, Buddy Guy came. And also that same year, Etta James came. Can I ask you when, you, when you first arrived in Chicago, I mean, coming from a small town like Huma in Arkansas, like, I mean, from the yeah, country. Yeah, that's right, from the country. So what was going to Chicago like? Uh, I was looking for the big city and the bright lights. When I went to Chicago, I was couldn't get wait to get there because I had to work myself all the way up to Memphis, to St. Louis, to Chicago because I could afford to go on one way, all the way. <laughs> I had to work myself in points and buy okay. a little gas and work my little guitar, get me a little, make me a little money, four or five dollars here and to buy some gas. It was 13 cent a gallon, man. Gas were real high. Yeah, <laughs> <sure>. <laughs> yeah. but I, I got into Chicago because I had met Muddy Waters. Uh, I had met 
that's Domino quite nice, but he wasn't in Chicago. I met a few guys that was influenced me by going to the big cities. And I went to get Chicago because that was more opportunity to work and make some money so I could buy the kind of instrument I want and play the blues. And what kind my of mind was made up what I wanted to do. I just worked some job in order to get my, so I could buy the guitar, I buy some Hallmarker, because I knew what I wanted to do. It wasn't the jobs. I don't care if they paid me $100 a day. I, it wasn't a job. I want the job and also I could buy the equipment that I wanted so I could quit my job and play music. Not thinking about it, I got to make a living. I, had, I didn't think about that. Hmm. I thought about playing the music and what I love. Too silly to think about making money. I would think about playing the music the, for the love of it. But the fact that you're still doing music, I presume some of that is still because of the love of it as yeah. opposed to the money. Yeah, it's the love of it and, and because I've learned to do it. I still love it. But but I do think about the money ends of it now. Mm -hmm. Because at that time, see, one why when I first started, I was going to write for myself to find a writer. I was going to promote myself to find a promoter. I was going to book myself to find an agent to book me. I was going to manage myself to find a manager. So after 40 years doing that for myself, I woke up one morning, and I think the late B.B. King really made me aware of where I stood. He asked me, he said, Bobby Rush, you've been doing all these things for yourself. How about producing me? A little guy like me, B.B. King, asked me to write and produce a record on him. Then that's when I realized I had something that was worthy of getting paid for. It done, it done on me then. Like one guy said, you're going to be great. You're going to make a lot of money one of your days. Make what, a lot of money doing what? Doing what I do? You mean, Tim, you can make a lot of money doing this, what I'll do free because I love it so well, you know? But then as you get older, then the money thing sets in because you got to take care of your family. You got to take care of your musician. You got to work a lot so they have some work to do. You guys also try to get some money so you can pay the guy so everybody be comfortable financially. And now... Uh, I realized that I did a lot of things right, a lot of things wrong too, a lot of things right. I'm, I own probably 90% of my masters mm -hmm. that from early 50s up until now. Didn't know they're gonna ever be worth anything. They hadn't thought about that. Now, the masters stuff that I own is worth a lot of money now. Now I'm I'm worth a lot of money. Don't have any money, but I'm worth a lot of money. <laughs> and and but, you can put, put out a box set of music with yeah, your masters, right? Yeah, yeah. Without having to do the good, I, and, and, and it won't be all of them. It'll be some of them, right? Because when you got three hundred something records, you, you, some of them I know what it is, and some of them I don't. But uh, pretty much everything I can claim that I had some parts of it. If I don't have a masters of it, I, I I do that because, and I can say that because it's the truth. Because I didn't have nobody who was maybe they didn't think I was ever gonna be here this long or make it. So now when you look around, here I am. Let me tell you that coming from where I'm coming from, sit here talking to you today. Last year, the late B.B. King asked me to work in the NOLA Mississippi for him. He said, I want you to do the show with me in Mississippi. That was last year, uh, 14. He said, because this is the last show I'm gonna do in Mississippi. I said, okay. I didn't take it for uh, serious. I was working in 
Memphis, Tennessee, right out of Memphis, Tennessee, the night he was doing this show. And I was booked to go on as a headliner. And I told the promoter, I said, listen, I need to be off to do something for B.B. King tonight. And I need to go on early. He said, no, Flat, you can go on at 4 o'clock so you can do this thing for B.B. King. I was surprised that our promoter let me do that, and I was the headline of his festival. Mm -hmm. He had a lot of people there. He let me went on early, let some local guys came on after me so I could do this for B.B. King. I got there, supposed to do it at 11 o'clock. I got there about 20 minutes to did the show with B.B. King and for B.B. King. He thanked me, and I thanked him. I went to the after party with him. He did a show. He called me on the, on the bandstand with him. I must have stayed on the bandstand with him for 45 minutes, he and I, singing one song. I didn't know B.B. King was that sick, mm -hmm. you know? And he just sung one song. I guess he didn't remember the song well. And I stayed on the stage with him, kind of embraced him, and really just done whatever, just on the stage with him, right. singing with him, hugging him, and being with him. And the next, in June of the of next year, same year, I got the B.B. King's Award for the best performer, best performer of the year, and up for Grammy three years in a row. And one of these songs in the same year, same month that he passed, I looked around. He asked me to do the last show for him, not knowing that he gonna be the last show. Period. Mm -hmm. Then he, uh, then I got the BB King's award in his name. Three or four days, and he passed. The first time I had tears in my eye because he passed the torch to me. Then someone looked around and said, Bobby Rush, uh, you're the next man in line for the kingship. And I, so I would go, a buddy, buddy guy, a Bobby Rush, for the blues guys. Then I surveyed a little bit. I may be a little bit older than Buddy Guy. That mean I'm the oldest black blues guy around now. Then when I look at people who older than I am, not not considered as blues player, that would be Fast Domino and Chuck Berry. You have Little Richard there, considered as my friend, but I believe if he's not the same age, he's around my age, I could be a few months older than Little Richard. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, I, and that's a sad thing to lose all of my friends but it's a surprising thing that, that I don't live long enough to be this oldest guy around now. How does that make you feel? I felt good to be here and I'm blessed and thankful, but I felt sad not knowing it slipped up on me. I didn't know. Uh, I mean, it's it's been it's, 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 a it's, tough it's, road, right? Like, it's, I mean it's been a tough role, especially for me, because I'm one of the few guys who have embraced my culture and the race of my people. I'm, I'm the one of the few guys who crossed over to a white audience, but I didn't cross out my peoples. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yes. I know that you, you, know, you were known as, or probably still are, the, the king of Chitlin Circuit. Right. Can you talk to me about the Chitlin Circuit? Because I'm not, I've, I've never been, and, and I'm not yeah. familiar with it. So for people who have no idea what the Chitlin Circuit is. Well, let me, let me set the record straight. Out of all of the things that people write about Chitlin Circuit, most people write about the Chitlin Circuit 
it's white guys and ladies who write about it. Mm-hmm. But let me set something straight with the Children's Circuit, my perspective and what I think it is. Children's Circuit is a place where black people work, including myself, where we work for chitlins. That's what we work for, for food. Sometimes we fix a hamburger or two hamburgers and a bowl of chitlin. That's what we work, that's what we work for, that's what we got paid with our food. You got your food, your board, and that's what you place your stay and some chitlin. Now, if you get a little tip, that's extra. Right. This guy will play your Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I remember a guy played me, I played so well for the guy, he liked me so well. He gave me four hamburgers, four bowls of chitlin. I could sell the chitlin, I sell three chitlin and three hamburgers for 25 cent a piece. So I'm making $3 a night on my on my food I didn't eat, right. what he's serving me. So that's my money. We come up like that. Chitlin Circuit is not just a juke joint, and not just a black club. It's a, it's a club that didn't pay very much money where you could see the chicken running through the yard and the whole bit. Well, we didn't get paid very much money. That's chitlins, and they fed you chitlins. Chitlins. The hog guts. But the audience is basically a black crowd. At that time, at that time, because that's all the place we could work. I worked at, when I got into the place I could work to a white audience, most of the time, and particularly a couple of times, on the door, it was said no color allowed, no black people's allowed. But you were like able to go on stage. I was able to go on stage, and I played many days and many nights behind a curtain where they wanted to hear my music, but they didn't want to see my face. How did that make you feel? Uh, at that time, I didn't feel bad about it. When I learned the reason, I started feeling bad. At the time I was doing that, I was a young man who came up in the South, didn't know anything about a racial thing. Let me, let me stretch this straight. Because I came up, as a preacher in my family. My dad's a pastor of a church. I didn't go to school with anyone but a black people. I didn't know anybody but black people. So there was no racial thing. I didn't know about the separation until I got old enough to go to work for myself. Then I learned about the racial thing. I thought maybe they would put me behind a curtain because they just didn't want to see me, not because I was black. Hmm. I didn't have that nada. When I found out what why I'm behind the curtain, that's when I started feeling bad. But at the meantime, this guy was paying me $7 a night. I had been making $5. I'm now making $7 a night, man. $21 a weekend I'm making. That was more than Muddy Waters and all the guys was making. Then when we started making $20 a night, oh, God, $60 a week? I was making $60 a week. Muddy Waters was getting $55 a week. I was making $5 a month in Muddy Waters. Because the guy taking the light on me, I'm this swift kind of guy. And sometimes I would go to work Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and one or two of Friday and Saturday night, I would work another gig for five dollars. So I make an extra five dollars by going to the other gigs. Make five dollars a night. That's ten more dollars a week. Was it different when you went up to Chicago? Well, I'm like, talking about Chicago. I'm talking about Chicago. Okay, so but sorry, racism was that different in that? Because I've heard people talk about this. In yeah, the South, people, it, it, you knew yeah. what, the, what the rules were. In the North, maybe you didn't. Well, I was expecting something different. But it seemed to be different, but it's all the same. Because I didn't have to work behind a curtain 
in Arkansas, or Louisiana, or Mississippi. But I worked behind a curtain in Chicago. They hired me, but they didn't want to see my face. In the South, if they didn't want to see your face, they didn't hire you. Do you remember the first time you played to a white audience without yeah. the curtain? Yeah, in Mendola, Illinois. What was that like? Uh, a guy came to me, small club, seat maybe 50, 60 people. Myself, I believe Freddie King was on guitar. Robert Plunkett was on drum. Willie Jane was on second guitar, which was no bass at them days. You had two guitars, but one of them had a wind down to play bass on them. And myself. I had Bobby Rush and the Four Jivers. I played, and a guy came to me and said, about drunk, he said, by God, he used the word, the N-word. He said, niggas y'all show can play good. And he wasn't mad about it. He said, oh, man, y'all can play good. He used the word again, niggas, y'all can play. Oh, I like you niggas. Willie James, who's married to a white lady, she's sitting in the audience, but they don't know the white lady with him because when he went in, she went in first, he came in. Nobody knew that's his wife. Right. So Willie James is mad enough to fight. So was Freddie King. So the guy come to us, he said, used the N-word again. He said, man, I like y'all. Man, y'all some beautiful niggas. And he wasn't mad, he was, and he stuck something in my pocket. I'm trying to be cool till I get off the stage for this, this set. He came back every five minutes and man, stuck something in my pocket. I thought it was a dollar or some change. He said, you niggas, baddest niggas I ever see. He kept using the word, the N-word. So I looked in my pocket at the end of the set, was trying to find this guy, because I don't know if this guy's with me, it's smelling of the fight. Mm -hmm. And I looked in my pocket, it was about six or seven hundred dollar bills. I'm making five dollars a night, six or seven hundred dollar bills in my pocket. Wow. So I told the band, I said, I think I got something for you, the guy who called us a nigger. He said, what is it? So I gave them a hundred dollars to split up among themselves. That's a lot of money in them days. They don't know what I have. They think I'm giving all the guy give me. So I got me four or five hundred dollars. I'm rich now, you know. Go back on the set again. He came back again. Said, play that song again, niggas. And he wasn't saying the loud just enough for us to hit on the bandstand. So he stuck something in my pocket. Now I'm aware of what he put in my pocket. We come down the next night, come down off the stage, he suck and I get him guys another fifty dollars, twenty-five a piece. Now I now I got me for I'm rich now. I'm finna go buy me a, a house because I'm rich. Sunday night out of Friday and Saturday. Now I done get a guy some money. Now come Sunday night, this guy, we start at six o'clock in the afternoon. This same guy is on a pool table shooting pool. Now he's sober, he's not drunk this night. So Freddie and myself and Willie Jane, we all playing, Robert Plunkett, we all playing this song, playing his song, cause we see him playing his song. Now the guy, the guy's cool with the, with the N-word thing by right. now. <laughs> so uh, Freddie played another time, we played the song so long, two or three times. We see this guy must don't see us over here. So Freddie yelled, I said, hey sir, said the niggas over here playing. <laughs> 
<laughs> By that time, the N-word is cool with the guys because they get paid for it. So those are some of the things that, that I laugh about. And I take it in my car. It wasn't a good thing when you look back at it. But it was a thing where it was a common thing. And it's still today, just don't call you that. Because somebody don't say it, that don't mean they don't think it in their hearts, who you are and whatever, you know. But do you still play to black audiences? Yeah, I'm one of the few guys who crossed over and didn't cross out. And I have a big black audience, big follower. And I didn't plan it to be like this. I did, but I planned to not to ever cross my peepers out. Right. And I didn't do it. And I, and I don't want to get into name calling. You can say most guys who have the white audience don't have no black audience. I said most of the guys. Can you? This might be a silly question, but you know the only thing I can relate to is that Martin Scorsese blues documentary that you were in. Did a great thing for me. Yeah, and it definitely. But you know, I got to see what you do back then, playing to your black audiences. Right. And and my observation, which is limited, but was that. It's a very different crowd. The way they react to your music, they're part of the show, and it's a give and take. Well, but it's it's different, but it but it ain't different. It's different, but when you when you do what you do and do it well, people can respect it and 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 get into it. Black people are part of the audience. Now, since I'm so comfortable with what I do, I can make white people a part of my audience too. When I first started crossing over. It was a little difficult because I didn't know what to do, right. and then and and I was trying to save my neck by, uh, I hope I can get this job back again. I'm hoping people hire me again, but I'm not as worried about it as much as I was then. They either you can take it or leave it, cause I'm me. I just me, and I and people have accept me for being me. Mm-hmm. You know, <clears throat> I remember when I first started crossing over to a white audience, and I hear entertainers and musicians say, "Well." I'm going to record like this what white people like. I'm going to do this because I think this is what black people like. I do what I feel and hope everyone like it. It's not a black and white issue with me. Right. Now, I'm getting comfortable I can do that, but at a young age, I couldn't do that. Now, I'm old enough. I have a big enough name. I can kind of do what I want to do as long as I do it well and with taste. We, we talked about the Scorsese movie, and you said that did a lot for you. I mean... I presume that put you on the map, but is that incorrect to say that? I know you were well known, but did that movie put you in a different yeah. level? Yes, uh, it put me in a level that that I never had been in. It's almost a, then since that time, Dan Aykroyd did something with me on the Night Show, mm-hmm. what did a great thing, and I think this. Uh, this box set coming out gonna even be better. And then what I'm doing now, coming back to Canada a few times, like it's gonna even grow and grow. And and all of that combination of my age, the money that I put in myself, the record that I record through the years, the kind of show I do, puts me in a different category because my show with the girls dancing on the side of me make me be this black man and the only man who doing this. And the only crazy man who got nerve to do what I do. <laughs> Tell me about the sense of humor, because I mean, there's there's humor in your story. Oh, in, I'm, in a, I'm, I'm a stand-up comedian, man. I'm a stand-up comedian. And I understand at one point yeah, you, you yeah, did some stand-up yeah, comedian yeah. stuff. In you your can show. tell it when I sing my song. You can tell it all in my song, man. I'm a, I'm a where does I'm that a come joker. from? Coming from uh, 
my background, my family, my dad, my uncles, they all kind of jokey, kind of fighty, fighty thing, you know. Uh, I remember when I was just a little boy, my uncle was driving. I believe my uncle was driving. He had a twin brother, called him Jeff. His tw he was driving, my dad was in the front seat. So he was running over every hole, looked like he was talking and drinking and just wasn't watching the separate the whole bomb boom, 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 running over the big holes and so my my uncle, who's my daddy's brother, like comedian, he said, he said, Jeff, Jeff, hold on, stop the car. He stopped the car, he said, You missed the hole back there. <laughs> <laughs> now the point of that is he ran over so many holes. <laughs> so how could you miss one? <laughs> Cause all these devils, they say, stop the car, stop the car. Go back. You missed one. <laughs> <laughs> so from that standpoint, I would know that I was, I'm a comedian. You know, I say a lot of joking, funny things, you know. And I remember when I first got started, went to myself, Ike Turner, was going to uh, Rock Island, Illinois. There was a gentleman named Pretty Bop was going to work as an MC. And I was getting $28 a night as a band leader. Now I'm getting big money. But he was giving a comedian $28 to come down, and I got to, I got to come down for twenty five dollars. I'm making three dollars on him, <laughs> so I'm the boss. I'm, I'm, yeah, I put the deal up. So I, on a Wednesday night, by that Thursday night, he called me and said I can't go. I said, oh, What I'm gonna do? I'm thinking about the money issue. So I said, Well, I could do I could do it. He he wanted MC. I can be this MC. MC had to be a comedian. I said I could be the MC. So I'm a well dresser. So I dressed real well and went to the Goodwill store, bought me some big overalls and a coat and put it on. I didn't wear a mustache then. I went to the drugstore and bought me some shoemane mustache and stuck them on. <laughs> and I looked in the mirror and put me a hat on. I said, yeah, what am I gonna call myself? I said, I got it. You the tramp. Now, I'm Bobby Rush, but I sing, but I'm the tramp when I do the comedian. So the man didn't know that I was, was one person. So I went in and said, ladies and gentlemen, it's now showtime behind this curtain. Let's introduce the, the tramp, superstar. I goes out, tell these jokes and everything and have people cracking up. So now, ladies and gentlemen, it's start time. Let's get together. So Bobby Rush, I step behind the curtain, pull him off, pat my hat down, take these clothes off. I come back on the stage and Bobby Rush. <laughs> so I was two guys, man. I was making two monies, you know. Where does the name Bobby Rush come from? It come from my dad is my dad is I'm a junior. My name is Emmett Ellis Jr. My dad is a senior, and I respect my dad so highly. I didn't want anyone to come to him talking about this nightclub guy singing the blues, and I'm, I'm a junior. I didn't want Emmett Ellis because I didn't want to mix his name up as a preacher. Right. That's the only reason. No other reason. No other reason. And I tell it every way I go. But how did you come up with the name Bobby Rush? <laughs> Took me about two years. I first named myself as a country boy. I'm not, I wasn't educated. I called myself, I, I wanted to name myself President Eidenhouse. I thought about Truman. I thought about President Truman. All these names. Big name, president name. Right. All I could think about big name was there. Did I come up? Oh, I got it. Bobby, I had a first cousin named Bobby. Named Bobby Ellison. That Bobby sounds good, but what can I put with it? I tossed with it for about four or five 
weeks, couple months went by, I said, Bobby Rush. That's it, one syllable. Nobody called me Bobby, nobody called me Rush. Everybody called me Bobby Rush. Not a lot of Rushes, a lot of Bobbies, but they for one Bobby Rush. And that's your preference, right? And, you everybody, and everybody called me Bobby Rush. Nobody called me Bobby R. Rush. Everybody called me Bobby Rush. Okay, and then the other thing that you do is you, you use the name a lot in your songs. I do, I do it intentionally. <clears throat> I, I went, that was a period of time where radio was coming in and it was, it was aimed to uh, lessen black music right. or who do it because they would play 10 records in a row and it was planned like that, built 10 records in a row, so they wouldn't have to be encountered who done the record. And it'd be names and numbers. It's almost like disc jockeys. Disc jockeys used to have names where you had to pay a disc jockey. You know, like that Wolfman Jack and the whole mm-hmm. bit, the Rodney Jones. They was big name in radios. But now they started playing 10 records in a row, so you don't know who playing them. Anybody can put them on. So they're taking the name from the disc jockey, so corporate radio won't have to pay them big money. Mm-hmm. You won't have to pay an artist big Big money, if you got a hit record, people come and see the name with the hit record, not the name, you know? I remember a guy had a record uh, called Kung Fu Fighting. The big was big, but you don't know his name. Nobody know his name. Right. So you don't have to, you pay for name. So I start to put my name, so well, the radio was playing 10 records in a row, you gonna, if you play one of my records, you're gonna know who played it, because I'm gonna <laughs> say Barbara Rush in it 10 times, you know? And that's, that's why, it was, it was a plan. It was a plan. It wasn't something I just did. It was a plan. Right. Tell me, because I think it took a while for you to get recognized, the recognition that you deserve. I, I think I think it was a reason because I, I, wouldn't, I didn't have no managers. I wouldn't sell out. I wanted to cross over and didn't want to cross out. I didn't want nobody telling me what to do and what to record and how to do what I do. And, and I suffered for that. Did you ever think music that you would quit music, or was that? Oh quite- God, yeah. I, I went through some pay, some. I went through some low points. Uh, many times, I wish I was uh, hauling pup wood or whatever, or picking cotton again. That's just how hard it was. And uh, people had told me, "Oh, this ain't gonna work, Bobby Roy. What you doing? Who'd ever thought I'd be in, in Canada now? They may not have me going on last, but I can bet you one thing: they got me in a headline position." Mm-hmm. No, no, I think you're going on last. Even if I don't go on last, my name, I build my name. I build my name and God have blessed me. When I get on the stage, I can produce. So when it was tough, how, what made you continue? Every time I felt a low point, something would come along, or somebody would come along, encourage me. I remember I was in New York working, uh, and I was so disgusted. And my show was always good, but I had to, we were there five days, and the late Ray Charles, I was opening up for Ray Charles. And I was disgusted. He said, well, why are you rehearsing every day? I said, I gotta change my show around so I can be fresh. He said, well, you already fresh. Your show is good. Why I wanna change? I said, well, I've been here five days. He said, if, if you've been here five days, that means you should have left yesterday. You've been here too long. Don't change your song, change towns. <laughs> Makes sense. He said, if you got something working, that's all, don't, don't change your show, just change town, go to another town. And ever since then, if you want to hear Barbara Ray's show, that's what you're hearing yet. 
I may add my new song, but I don't change my pattern because what I what I'm doing works. You know, and then I look back at a few guys, especially BB King. Even when disco came in, he didn't try to move from what he was doing to the disco to fit in what's going on now. He stayed there. Maybe because he couldn't do anything else. Just because he couldn't do anything else that made him the king of the blues. So I'm not moving. I'm still this man who's a black man who knows I'm black, who plays black music and proud of it and proud of what I do. And I'm not ashamed of, ashamed of what I do. And you can tell that when I go on, here I am. What you see is what you get. And, and that, you know, I saw you in Norway <clears throat> at Natarden. I mean, what you do, there's no borders. I mean, you can do this anywhere. And I, I know you played in China. I mean, same thing. You know, you either like it, you don't like it. <clears throat> I don't try to adapt to the town. I try to adapt to where I am. I try to do good music, be good at what I do, so they adapt to what I do. And people would respect that, too. There's no different people than Mississippi and New York. They're all human. They all understand. And you don't have to like me. You can just, if I do a good show and I'm good at what I do, you have to like me. You say, I don't like him, but damn, he good. It's hard for me to not imagine that somebody could not like you. One thing I noticed, and when I go to Memphis and I see you walking around, I mean, you relate to everybody. And it doesn't matter if it's fellow musicians, big stars, little newcomers, or people who are wait staff or whatever. I think you have a way of talking to everybody as equals or with a sense of humor. That well, they, they, are, they are equal to me. And uh, speaking about being equal, uh, I learned from a lot of people, a lot of things. And I know I'm on the right road of this. Look how you do me. Now, there's a many people I didn't do an interview with, but you want a few guys, I never said no to you. It's the way you approach me. It's the way you approach people. I never go into a place and set myself off into a dressing room to be this big artist that I don't want to talk to no one. Because if, if, if not the people, then who you are? You're nothing but not the people who love you. If we go back to the point, you've had your hard times. Tell me about the moment you thought, I've made it. Be honest with you, when I thought I made it, the more things change, more it remains the same. I thought maybe I made it when I went to Boston, and and I went to Boston and sold the House of Blues out. It was almost ninety-nine percent white audience, and I was aiming for the white audience. So well now, maybe I have the white people gain. That same week, I went to work Bill Street in a white setting. There were 99% black folks there. Then I said, well, maybe I made it. I made a marking, but I had 99% white people yesterday. Today, I got 99% black people. Which one of these marks is good for me? Well, I made it. So I was toned about where I was until I went to Little Rock a few weeks today, and I had 50-50 black and white. I said, nah, I made it. What year would that have been? Uh, 83, 1983. Wow. I said, now nah, I made it, because this is what I wanted. I wanted 
I wanted the black art and the white art, but I wanted to put them together. I wanted to just get them together. Then that's made it for me. You're not playing, not playing a white audience where no black people come, a white audience, uh, where black audience, no white people come. You know? I, I, I've, my sense for them, hairs are making, because this is what I wanted. I want to bring this together. Then I said, I made it. That was the point. But then when I went to, a few years ago, I went to B.B. King homecoming in, in his hometown. And his hometown was 85% black people in his hometown. He had only about 5% black people to come and see him in his home hometown. I was disturbed again with that saying that now I'm thinking about myself being a black man. Then I went to the coast was still a black area that was probably 95% white people to see him. But then when he passed at his funeral, there were only 5% white people come to his funeral and it was 95% black. Now I'm really confused now where this is going. Got to understand me as a black man trying to judge well people's who what people think about you as your, as a person and are relating me in that same shoe. I was disturbed. Before he passed, just a year before he passed, when he played, black people didn't support him. But as a funeral was ninety five percent black people come to his funeral. So now I'm saying, why are they surrounding him now? They didn't support him just a two, three years ago, a month ago, but white people came to to see him, but they not at that funeral. Now I'm really confused about this issue now. So I don't know, uh, those kind of things disturb me, but I have to look at it realistic. Do people love you for you or what you do? If they love Barbara Rush for what I do, I got to make sure what I do be beneficial for me and my family. Or the love of it got to make me happy, not the people who come. Right. So it doesn't matter with me where it's all black audience or white audience, longer people come. But what does matter with me, can I get both sides to come amigo? That's what matters to me. If I'm big enough to draw, 20,000 black white people and more black people come, I don't know whether that's total satisfaction to me or not. I want everybody to like me. But at this stage in your life, and you've had success for many years, what keeps you going? Like, why do you continue doing what you do and, and work still very hard, I, I presume? Uh, I care what keeps me going is my prayer being answered. I don't talk about this much, but my prayer I've been answered. I asked God a long time ago to keep me enthused because a man can live a long time without water or food, but you can't live long without hope. I still have hope, and I'm still enthused with people and the things that I do. I see so many people, 
I don't want to go to work tonight. Well, I can't hardly wait till the night come because I'm still enthused. Mm -hmm. And it's not all about the money. It's all about a prayer would answer to me. God had given me my, he had answered my prayer to keep me, I'm still enthused. The day I'm not enthused, I think the day that I don't want to do this anymore. I'm enthused, you know? Like what you're doing, you, it, it, you want money from it or you want to be successful, but until that time, you keep hoping. It's almost like, I saw a book one time when I was about six years old. That was a man who was plying a horse. He had an ear of corn on a bridle and the mule plied for 20 years trying to catch up with the corn, not knowing that every time he moved, the corn moved. Mm -hmm. So my life had been like the corn in the front of a mule. Every time it moved, I move. Every time I move, it moved. But I'm thinking tomorrow, I get closer to it. I'm still enthused about tomorrow bring a better bring about a better day. Well, you're constantly working, and and whenever I see you on stage, there's joy in your face. It's joy, and, and, and the joy don't always come from just to work. It comes from the blessing that God gave me the gift to work, and I feel good enough to work. I'm so thankful. Mm -hmm. I'm so thankful for what it is. When I look at what it is, I'm so thankful for what it could be. You know, if, what it is is one thing. What it could be is another thing. I could not be in the, I could not have my health and strength. I could be financially in trouble. I could be, I could be an addict. I could be a dope fiend. I could be all these things. And I'm thanking God that I didn't take that pass. You know, I did a whole lot of things I didn't want to do. But I, I had a beer in 1957. I had three beers in my lifetime. I never had a glass of wine for dinner in my life. Never drank, never smoked, never really? got high, no form of fashion. Like no interest at all? No, no. I think when I had my beer, I was looking for a taste. To me, I was thinking about a pop, soda, that it didn't taste like that, so this is no good. I wasn't thinking about what it would do after the fact. Right. So I happen not like it. But am I a blessed man? Because if, if it had a taste good, oh, I'd have been an alcoholic. Yeah, I'm quite sure if it would taste good, like I was expecting it to taste, I'd be an alcoholic. But the beer, ah, oh, yeah, that wasn't what I was looking for. I was looking for beer when I'm thirsty like water to me. It didn't, so if it had been, I'd probably been hooked. You know? Is there anything about Bobby Rush that we don't know that you would like people to know? Like I, I think you do community work. I think you do a lot of charity yeah. work. But beyond that, I mean, is there something about you that? Well, I don't know whether it's something that I want people to know about. But but I tell you another thing. I've did a lot of things. wasn't godly, wasn't spiritual. That I that that I don't wish I could change it. I just wish it had been another way. Mm -hmm. Uh in my career, I worked so hard, but in my working so hard, by my mishap, the things I could not do, the things I didn't get, the things that didn't come to me easy, it educated me so much to, to learn how to maneuver in order to get to these points. Because I would never knew how 
to do some of the things I do if I had a camera easy on the plate with me. Right. You know, because when I was young, going to Muddy Water and Hollow with all these guys, all they ever talked about in a room with me was how many ladies, how much whiskey drank, how many reefer they could smoke. All that's okay. But it wasn't nothing that to motivate me other than about my music, that's what I wanted. I would, these guys weren't talking about none of that mm. to me. Right. And they were talking about the fun part and how you do your show. I was interested in, God, I want to get out of this, man. I want to get out of this ghetto thing. I want, nobody talked to me, but I didn't know where to get it from. All I knew, I was be my wall. When most of the guys was 25 years old, had 20 ladies, they was going out to party. I was going to home, to my guitar, to my music. They were having fun. I was sent up in a little corner somewhere, stroking, find out what the next gig gonna be. Didn't have no, didn't, I wasn't with the ladies hanging out in the party. I was dud, I was just uh, square. I knew, but I wanted to do, man, I got to get out of this. How am I gonna get out of this? How am I, who gonna teach me how to do this? Who gonna show me how to do this? I would watch the guy, nobody to show me anything. I just, from the hip. Even down to just a few years ago, I didn't know anything about computers or whatever, but I found myself writing and doing what I need to do and all to get the smartphones or whatever. You got to do what you need to do to educate yourself how to get there. Mm -hmm. And part of the computer age thing really ain't for me or somebody like me right. is a control is is a control too because mm -hmm. if you now you got a place where you need the computer in order to stay in the game that's a plan too before before you all all you need is a record out and you go to a radio station and get it played you get it played you get gigs now you know record plays and no record stores to sell your music no black radio is playing the music now what you gonna do you got to go to the computer what you got to depend on? You got to depend on the people who computer headed and the people who own the computer that to, to, to show you how to make money with. Now you got to get an army around you to make the money because I can't play on the stage and do all the computer work too. Now you got to pay people to do what you need to be done. So it's always a way to divide the money up or somebody get the money before you get the money. You know? Mm -hmm. And and guys, people's want to see me in the limousine cars and the planes and whatever, all this good. But when you get in my position, our star position, who makes money around you is the manager, uh, record company, promoters, trains and planes, transportation, the buses. When you get through, you look like a star, but, but, but the stupid star died broke. Because now you got Uncle Sam, you got all these people around you who want some money from you. And you generate a lot of money, you go home with little. Yeah. That's the name of the game, you know? So it's been hard for me to maintain myself to the point where I manage and do all these things for myself. Because I found out that when you mom and pop, what I mean by mom and pop, when you can do things for yourself, you can survive, survive the rat race. And when you're big enough to cooperate yourself, you make money.
all in between is a loser because you're too big for one thing and not big enough for another. And most entertainers get trapped up in that. And it's also really tough in the blues to get to that next level. Oh, it's, it's tough. Right? I mean, it's tough. Really tough. It's tough. Is there, like, do you have hobbies? Do you th- I, know, I know you're a hardworking musician. I know you yeah. love your humor. But if we were to catch you on an off day, what does Bobby Rush do? Fishing. Love the fish. And this is around Jackson that you would? Yeah, ja- if, if it's a fishing hole. If you, you don't have to be no fishes in it. Just tell me it is. <laughs> <laughs> Just lie to me, see? <laughs> and tell me about your greatest catch. Oh, God, man, I'm a good fisherman. Uh, I have caught some 20-pound cat spoonbills, man. I'm, you know, I'm a, I know how to fish. I know how to do snagging and a whole bit. You can only snag in a few states, Michigan, Illinois, but I, I go snagging, fishing. I don't like to catch catfish. I like to catch browns and trouts and stuff like that. I like to fish. I mean, you got to... Fish man, not just throwing bodies to get on there. No, no, no. You <laughs> You're working it. Yeah, I got that. I got to work it. I got. I got to feel it. You know, he's too small. Get him up. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, know? you get a chance to do that often these days, or? Yeah, I get chance to do it pretty often. Not as often as I want to. Got a bunch of grandkids like to go with me. They like to play, but I like to fish. But nevertheless, we all enjoy. I'm, I'm enjoying fishing. They enjoy playing with me with the fishes. So they like to catch. You know, they like to go. My final question to you. What's the greatest lesson you've learned in life? The greatest lesson I've learned that you always have to depend on someone else. Not always yourself. I think I learned that in a later life. <laughs> and I learned that that I must do all I can while I can. I know there'll come a day that I can't do that I won't regret what I did not do. So I, I learned to do all I can at the moment and where I can. I thank you again. You know, you like I said, you've been kind enough to be interviewed by me a number of times, and yeah. it's always a thrill. Well, it's always a pleasure. Let me say to you before we get off, whatever, whatever the reason why you interview me or other people's, this is a call in too with you. Because how can anyone tell you no? Because you you don't you don't promise nobody the world or anything. You just do what you do and you do it well. And you and, and I think what you ask me is really what you want to know as a person, hoping that people want to hear want to know the same thing you asking me. I think that's for the people. I think people want to hear me talk about myself as an entertainer. I don't think people want to hear all the negative things that come up because it's not about the race. It's about the end of the run. All in between, there's a lot of things happening. But the beginning and the ending is so important. But I, hear, but I appreciate you you know, sharing with us your journey because it is a journey and, and, and you've done this for a long time and, and you've seen your ups and downs and I appreciate you sharing those stories with us. Well, I'm one of the few guys, if you notice, look at me. <clears throat> People can determine by looking at me about what's on my mind. I say about what's on my mind. People can tell that I had no chips on my shoulders about anything or nobody because I didn't come up like that. I don't know anything about the racial thing till I got grown. 
My daddy was a preacher and a farmer. I worked in the cotton field. They sun up to sundown, but I worked for my daddy. I didn't have to work for anyone else. What a blessing. When I think, when I hear other people talk about their upbringing, it make me feel like I'm a genius uh, come up in a different world because I didn't have to do that. I didn't have to go to work. People tell me, man, I started working when I was 15. I did too, but I worked for my daddy. I worked in the field, shopping cotton, picking cotton. I don't know where it's coming. And my hard work pays off. And I was blessed to have a family who understood what I do. And my family accepted me for who I am, a blues man. And blues men sometimes ain't the greatest thing in the world to do. Because when you when you accept this thing, the blues and do the blues, it's not about the money all the time. All the rent don't get paid all the time. But I was blessed enough to be in a position where there are some people who love me well enough to give me a shot. And the shot wasn't, but wasn't about the money. It was an opportunity to play. And I was good enough to get for people to pay me for what I've done. I have, I have club owners to hire me, come and say, well, I can't pay you, but you can have my club. And I, and they have put me out the club because I drove so many people at a few weeks that he'll put me out and say, oh, you're making too much money. You got to go. And when I come there, he didn't want to pay me $5. But I said, I'll tell you what you do. You had a bar and I had a door. He don't have any, by the time that third week, he had so many people come to that place, he no, no, you're making too much money. You got to go. I'll build it. But I, but I have done people like that. This weekend was the greatest, one of the greatest weekends of my life. This past Wednesday night, they honored me in Mississippi. The governor honored me as the oldest blue man in Mississippi since B.B. King passed. They did a benefit for me last night, which was Wednesday. And I flew here to do this. And on September the 19th, which is next weekend, they saluted me again at a festival that's 38 years old. And I, I headlined it 33 times. I played the first date for them for $500. It cost me $700 for the band and $200 to get to them. So I lose money playing for it till I build it up. They build this up with me there in about 15 years ago, I believe they got the OJs to come down and headline over me. I, I believe they paid them $80,000. And I've been drawing more the OJs in two years than they draw in one. I draw two to one. So they found out that I could draw just as much for the less money. So there was shame. And they said, well, here's a guy that didn't quit when we know we did him wrong. Here's a guy that didn't quit when we knew we'd underpaid him. Let's honor him. So they didn't honor him because they loved me. They honored me because they didn't have no choice. And I said it openly. And I told them I appreciate what they were doing, <clears throat> but they didn't plan to give me this honor. It wasn't, it wasn't in their design. It's God's design. And well, here I am. Well deserved, though. Thank you. 
You're a gentleman and, and a class act, and I really, really appreciate oh, the chance you. to know you and the chance to talk to you every time. Well, I appreciate the chance to do this for you because I'm hoping and praying that one day, if it ain't today, the doors are open for you. And it's open for you, you go open for a lot of other people because you have the love of people and love of music in your heart. So thank you for what you do. Thank you, sir.